Welcome. Woo, welcome to the Meeple Syrup Show, Designers Discussing Design. One episode 98, cut all the throats. That's right, we're talking backstabbing, we're talking cutthroat, we're talking take that, all that fun stuff that you might find in games. And uh, we have a couple fantastic guests lined up to chat about this. But before we get there, I got to introduce my fellow host, Sen Fong Lim. How are you doing, Sen? I'm doing great, Daryl. How are you? You're back from... Nuremberg, which is one of the other ginormous, that's a real word, thank you, uh, ginormous conventions in Germany, but it's a little different than Essen. Can you explain the differences between Essen and Nuremberg? Absolutely. Now that I've experienced it, I can speak a little bit to it. It is actually more similar to like a New York toy fair. Mm-hmm. So um, this it is a mix of a variety of products. Uh, so it's not just games, but it's a convention for really for fun. And so, I mean, you've got rooms that are dedicated to, you know, kids games and such or family games. But you also have things dedicated to toys or dolls or costumes or Right, so uh, the it's, place it's, it's was a funvention. A funvention? Yeah, it's a, it's a funvention, and it's a bit of everything. It's especially for imagine that's a, that's you. The next company, Daryl, funvention. It's like fun. And, and the idea is that stores can come out and just check out what kind of products they might want to uh, put on their shelves and okay. sell. And so it uh, it 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 includes a bit of a different crowd, especially the mass market. That's really the big mm. difference: is that you're getting a lot of representation from a lot of these large kind of toy slash game companies like Mattel and Hasbro and Goliath. And and then in the mix are also some of the companies that we know, even as German companies like, say, a Ravensburger, but they're also highlighting their toys or their puzzles mm-hmm. or different things like that. Right. So you'll see things like... Um like uh, certain companies have like entire lines of science stuff, like Absolutely. educational toys that we never get to That's see over here. Uh, like very Zoch, popular one yeah. was science actually. Yeah, like STEM stuff, right? And then Zoch will have uh, all this other stuff because they're the Zoch stuff we know is actually just a small part of the bigger company, which has all sorts yep. of things. Like so, like, for instance, for instance, Zoch toys and stuff. That's the one I liked. Yeah, Zoch. Zoc had like Norris with them, and I forget what the other company was, but they had paintings and they had puzzles and they had cool. uh, little kids' games and you name it. Nice. And before that, you were in the Dominican Republic, so we haven't seen you for a long time. I know. I've been I've been missing in action. I uh, I had the opportunity to go visit my mom, who's down in the Dominican for a few weeks. So uh, shucks, I had to do that. Um, but now I'm back. Yeah, that's good. Um, you know, let's uh, save our chitter-chatter for the after show. I guess we'll have one today. Um, that's good. And we're going to bring on our guests right now. So the guests we have today are two men who are agents of chaos, like like quite literally agents of yes. chaos. So we have with us today uh, the founder, CEO, president, whatever you want. I don't know what to call him really, but it's Kurt Covert. And he's coming up right now, May- sir. Bam. Maybe, and- maybe Emperor. Oh, hey, guys. How you doing? Good. How are you, Kurt? All right. Good. Well, we can't talk to you for much longer because we got to bring John on. John is uh, Jonathan Lavallee, a fellow Canadian. He's actually from my hometown of Sault Ste. Marie. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, he has long hair. There you go. Uh, 
Why I can't I can't click on John? Oh, there we go. Come on. Here he comes. Here he comes. Come on, come on. Drum roll, please. Jonathan Lavely, folks. There he is. Woo! Though I do, I do totally believe that we should grant Kurt the title of Emperor. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, because then we can make a game called Kill the Emperor, and we can Ooh. kill Kurt. Ooh. Don't Ooh. tell him. We're going to kill him. Tell him. <laughs> Though no, we, do, we do that every game. That's every game for us. Yeah, really? The, the actual title is uh, Chief Instigator. Mm, I like that. Is that actually your title? Yeah, chief instigator, and then of course Jonathan. Too evil. Too evil. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, so um, we're gonna get questions started. Daryl will start the questions. I just wanted to give a shout out to everybody who's watching right now, live with us. Uh, go on the Google chat and please give us some feedback, some questions. If you have any questions of Kurt or Jonathan, we're gonna go with that. Um, oh, Daryl, you want me to start off for? Okay, so Kurt, <clears throat> let's get right down to the nitty gritty of designing games that are uh, fun engagement, <laughs> that are that are chaotic, and that might need some kind of different types of handling than your standard cube push and euro. So Kurt, what's up with uh, player elimination? Why is it good? Tell us why it's good. We all know why it's bad. Why is it good? So it's it's interesting, um, and. I don't know. Starting with with player elimination is, is interesting, but I'd almost want to like start one level up higher, which is why take that? And mm, okay, you know, because great. that's also very polarizing. There are some people who love take that games, and some people who really that's not their cup of tea. Um, but um, I think one of the things that um, we kind of pride ourselves on is. While Euros are really good at creating um, games that are tightly balanced and very logic-driven, and sometimes very math-driven, um, our games are really trying to tap into the emotionality of that game experience. And if you can walk away having lots of highs and lows, gritting your teeth, you know, cursing of your friends, and uh, having having a laugh doing it, then that's what we that we really strive for. And if you can take a story away from the game uh, that you you know that you're talking about afterwards, that's really the goal. But player elimination. So player elimination was a um, a very common mechanic earlier in the days in, in the in the days of gaming. So like in the '80s, you'd see a lot more of it. Um, but of course, it does have downsides. You know, you don't want players to sit out you know, for half the game and, you know, you don't want all the hard feelings that come with that. But it is part and parcel of a lot of take that games. And as, as the industry has evolved and knowing that that can be so linked to take that games, we have in many cases found ways to bring that same emotional excitement around what player limiting means and deliver it in unique ways that don't necessarily count you out for the rest of the game. Um, or it waits it to the very end of the game. But I think what makes player elimination style mechanics still important and have a role is that when you are in a very competitive take that game, you want your actions to count for something, and sometimes points 
don't don't drive enough of the emotional impetus to to really get you really engaged. Uh, player elimination, that threat, even if it's just a threat, is enough to heighten the sense, the emotional sense of the game, and I think that's its strength. I get that. I like and Jonathan, I'm going to give this question to you uh, after I just tell a little story about Dread. Uh, Jonathan knows Dread as the Jenga Tower role-playing game. And that's exactly what you're talking about, Kurt, that you get that feeling of anticipation, of dread, of fear that the tower's going to get knocked over. And you're right, I don't get that when I'm pushing cubes around as much as I get that when there's a real risk of being outed from the game, that exclusionary risk. Um, and we can talk about the psychology of, of loss aversion and stuff like that as well. But mm -hmm. uh, going to Jonathan now, um, in terms of what you see the role of games like uh, of mechanical contrivances that are take that and player elimination, how does that mind meld with your Canadian identity? We're all jerks, so it's fine. We're all secretly jerks and want to attack people. That's that, that, that's the real Canadian identity. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> but I mean, to kind of go back with Kurt's point too, like I, I you know, talking about the um, like, like for me, the term is raising the stakes, right? When elimination is a possibility, it is it raises those stakes so that you know that that action means do I do this to open myself up, but do I take the risk to 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 get further or you know like it, it creates a different dynamic for the people at the table than just a straight, straight kind of point thing does. Um, and, and going back to kind of like an identity thing, um, you know, this is something that, that I, I, I've been thinking about too, is that, you know, the reason why it's so divisive is kind of a, a take, take those, take that mechanics kind of do that is everyone loves the feeling of being able to stick it to someone. Everyone loves that feeling. Right, and if they if they say they don't, I'm gonna call them call them a liar. I love right? that feeling. Do you love that right? feeling, Daryl? I love that feeling. Right, and so so what happens though is it's the feeling of being on the receiving end of that. That's the thing that people have the problem with. Right, it's it's yeah. the yeah, it's the you know ha ah, how could you do that you know because. You know that th that's where the the conflict kind of lies. When I see when what I've seen people play these games, right? They're always like, "Ha ha ha! I'm going to do this thing." But the people who who have a harder time with the games get upset when it happens to them. Right. Well, you know that brings up a really good point, Jonathan. And I think one of the differences um, is when you sit down to play a game that has been advertised. Everyone sits down and knows that this is a take that game and everyone is rewarded and punished in the same way. That's the social contract that you make to sit down to play. And that oftentimes is enough to place those hard feelings aside. And yeah, people will still, you know, grit their teeth and curse you, but very few table flips actually happen at our games. I won't say never, but, no. <laughs> but very few. <laughs> Absolutely. 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 Well, actually, that, that kind of leads into my question uh, with you, Kurt. Um, talking about expectations, uh, you have built a brand, Smirk and Dagger, that I think people have 
uh, an expectation, a clear understanding that they're they're going to involve games with with this take that or that uh, backstabbing and such. I'm curious if you could just give our viewers a little quick synopsis of kind of the history of Smirk and Dagger, how it started, and uh, just uh, what kind of games you make, so that you know designers watching know what what to to show you. Okay, yeah. Um, well, the first thing is, um, when I got started, I um, I was like pretty much every one of your viewers. I, w- I was an avid game player, and I had a couple games that I really just loved, so I would end up building expansion products to games I loved just because it was fun for us to play with, you know, in our, in our group. Um, at one point, I ended up putting like two years into a series of expansions on a dead game. Um, and someone finally looked at me and said, dude, why don't, why don't you make your own games? Spend all the time, you know, creating something. And so I said, well, that's not a bad idea. And I, I started actually giving it a try. Um, now, I'm a graphic artist by trade, at least, you know, certainly at that point. And um, so they looked gorgeous. My first three designs were just stunning to look at. But they were crappy-ass games. The worst things ever. These were games that I would... I'd call four-player solitaire. And there was really no player interaction. There was no excitement to the game. And I I finally sat back. I was like, you know, man, it's easy to build on brilliance. But to create a game, that is a task from from a blank piece of paper. So I kind of sat back and said, well, listen, let's, let's analyze you as a designer. First of all, what games do you love? And Tom Jolly's Whiz War was one of my absolute favorites. And for anyone who has played that game, um, it is very much a take that, I'm going to do this to you, counteraction, action. Um, even before Magic the Gathering, there, that whole action, counteraction was really prevalent in that game. And I loved yep. it. I kind of could tell you were going to say that one. Yeah. I mean, sealing someone behind a wall and watching them spin is just hysterical. Uh, so, <laughs> um, but in any case, uh, I said, all right, I'm also a marketer. And when I look at the websites of all these different companies, um, when I go to their mission statements, and now there were not as many companies back in the day, uh, but I would go on there and they say, you know, we make fun games for everybody, which is not a mission statement for a game company. So um, so I, I looked at some of the people who were really planting a flag in the ground and standing for something. And those companies were um, James Ernest Cheapass Games. And his whole vision was, yeah, you own the dice, you own the pawns. Here's a game for $5 and you can buy all five right now and go have a good time. Just bring your own bits. Um, I looked at Twilight Creations, which was, you know, zombies and dark horror. And they, that's what they stood for. Uh, I looked at um, Looney Labs and kind of the whole, you know, stoner culture. Um, and you knew what they were about, and you knew what kind of games to expect from them. So I said, well, as a marketer, I want to stand out. I want to stand for something, and I need to bring something unique to the table if I'm going to start a company. And the thing that I love best is take that game. So I gave myself a mission. I actually created the name of the company first, Smirk and Dagger Games. Because I wanted it to be important. Like, you know, the smirk is, is you thinking about the nasty thing you're about to do, lining up on your sites, 
And then that you're just like, oh, I can't wait to play this card. And then, of course, the dagger is the actual delivery of that. So both of those pieces, that's what the whole name is about. And with that mission, I, I sat down, and in two weeks, I had designed the first game. I wanted something that had lots of play interaction, lots of action counteraction, and that was Hex Hex, which, when you boil it down, is really just a, a nasty version of uh, Hot Potato with all kinds of fun wizarding, you know, overlay. Uh, so it's, you know, spell and counterspell and, you know, everything blows up in your face. And it's, it's a great time. Um, so armed with that game, I went to several conventions. I tested it. Now, Kickstarter didn't exist then. So if I was actually going to do this, I had to make sure that it was something I was willing to get a second mortgage on my house to print because that's what it took. So... Um, I ended up going to Gen Con as a guest of a retailer um, who said, hey, listen, I'm just looking to create some buzz in our booth. You know, why don't you come on by and, and you know, take that, that prototype you've got and, like, show it off. So I went to um, Kinko's, the staples of the day, and printed the first edition just on parchment paper, square cut corners. I put the 100 cards into a deck protector case, and I said, I don't know, I'll put... 12 bucks as a price on the game. And there is no sign, there is no, you know, you, you know how big Gen Con is. I was this one little table, black card table with a sign that said, Hex Hex, on it. And that was all the marketing that I did. But I sold 72 of the games, all hand-cut prototypes, essentially. I said, maybe I actually have something, and maybe there is to, there's something to this idea of Smirk and Dagger games. And that's kind of the origin story. Very cool. Very interesting. And I know uh, Jonathan's been connected with Smirk and Dagger for, for quite some time. Yeah. Has a game with you as well. I'd love to just hear kind of, John, can you give us a quick synopsis of kind of your story getting connected to board game design? And then also especially how you got connected with Smirk and Dagger. And obviously we'd love to hear about Jacuz. Sure. So uh, I started out with role-playing. And uh, I did a uh, line license for Cyber Generation for a while. And one of the things I would do is I ended up um, getting connected a little bit with the, the collectible card game that was happening. And one of the things is I ended up going to this convention in the States called Dreamation. And I meet Kurt there. It was Kurt and Jeff Batone from Slugfest Games. And that was kind of the thing we would we would go to. And I would go year after year after year. And we kind of would talk and play test and do all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and then one year um, at Gen Con, Kurt was by himself. He, it was a, he had a, a, a 10 by 20 booth. And it was just him. And I'm like look, I got nothing else going on. I'm running some role-playing games. You want me to sit down here and, and, and help out? And Kurt was like, yes. <laughs> and so we started, you know, doing the demos and starting the playtesting and, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And it just kind of became the thing where, you know, uh, for the longest time, it would just, like, Kurt and I would go there and we would just have a blast. Um, you know, uh, when Run For Your Life Candyman came out, and we started running the uh, the Saturday night tournaments at Gen Con. Uh, we're two for two for ruining talisman games uh, that have showed up nearby, right? Like we just get we get loud, that, and we would that, get rowdy. Kind of okay. 
think that's okay. <laughs> no, okay. So, 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 so the story behind that one, and then I'll get to Jacuzzi because this is this is this is fun. Uh, two stories. So, the, so we started doing the Run for Life Candyman tournament, and and I get very like when I was demoing it, and so I thought it'd be fun to do that in the tournament. And so we get set up into this room in Gen Con. It's like the 105 room. It's one of the little rooms off the hallway. And there's a game of Talisman there. And they're like two hours into this game, right? Like they've got two people on the second ring kind of like into this game of Talisman. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So we start up and I'm like putting people in. We're, we're sitting people down. And then like people are like ripping off pieces. I'm like, rip it off. And we're like banging on tables and like stopping and hollering. So much so that security showed up three times just to see if we were okay. Nice. <laughs> but about, 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 an hour, not even about, but about 40 minutes into that that, ga- that tournament, they pack up their game of talisman and leave. What is this here? I thought, anyone want to play a game of talisman? No, I, I no, no. we're talking about this... how we've ruined talisman games. And so oh, the next year, I love they that. Put, so next it. year, they put us in this the S hallway, you know, the glass hallway that's kind of outside that one area? So we get put there, and this was the year we met uh, a lot of our current instigators, like Melody and Brandon and Andrew and 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 Greg. They're all they're all there, and uh, we we sit them down and we get ready to do the tournament. And I look over. Remember, this is next year. I look over and I go, "Oh, it's a game of talisman," and the guy looks up and glares at me, and I'm like, "It's you." <laughs> <laughs> And they didn't even wait for us to get started. They just packed up their game of talisman and left. So, so basically, John, you're telling me that uh, instigators are also uh, as shit disturbers would be another another oh. name for them. Uh, look, if it just so it just so happens to be, you know, to evil. Uh, <laughs> that's now, pretty funny, Jonathan. Don't be modest. Uh, the truth is that a lot of the really vocal role play kind of craziness that surrounds our, our tournaments and some of the things that happen in the booth. Jonathan had a huge role in developing a lot of those great lines that get said and everything else and really makes it more than just playing a game, but creating a true experience. It, right. Yeah. And that was the other story I was going to tell. So one year we were doing, um, we had we had a demo, and when when you demo Run for Your Life Candyman, because it, it's an experience, it really is. It, it's Candyland. It's even with combat, it's still it's still Candyland. But it's fun because of that experience, because of the combat. And so when you demo it, there's people who are like, I'm not too interested in you know this extra stuff. I want to see how the game plays. Okay, I figured out how this game plays. Thanks. I'm I'm done. There's people who get it eventually, and then there's people who understand right away what we're trying to do. I had a table of six people who got right away what we were trying to do. So someone lost an arm, and I go, rip it off. And then immediately, all six people go with me, rip it off. Like, they could hear us two aisles down. And, like, that's where we came up with, like, because I was feeding off of them. And so, like, someone ripped off. I got someone's head. And I stand up and I go, behold, the head of my enemy. And I see Kurt actually stop his demo to try not to laugh. Well, I mean, that's that's the point of those feelings that you're talking about. And speaking of feelings, I just want to welcome our good friend Dylan Kirk back into the feed. Uh, Dylan, uh, how's life in France? God, you guys told me that there was going to be a game of talisman on. Like, what the hell is this? Honestly? Well, uh, Jonathan is the talisman destroyer, so we can't. Uh, 
So as soon as we say the word talisman, it's just over before it starts. Well, if you say oh it three God. times in a row, Jonathan will appear <laughs> to rip it up. Apparently. <laughs> I'll just start shouting in the background, and everyone's like, I, I can't, I can't concentrate. I just can't um, do this. So yeah. So oh. what happens? Mm-mm. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I was waving to the people in the background. <laughs> so what happens is, is that, um, so yeah, that's the kind of stuff we built up with uh, with the uh, Run for Life Candyman stuff. And, uh, and, wave and so, it's Jonathan, you can wave. Okay, see you later. Go get a snack. So yeah, so then, um, so about Jacuz, because I, like I said, I've, I've been helping out and doing playtesting and, and that kind of stuff. And so one year I had, I had something and I played it with Daryl. I played with a bunch of people and I'm like, okay, I think, I think Kurt would like this. And I'm really bad at, at pitching. Uh, mainly because like, I, you know, so it's just, I have a hard time necessarily sometimes selling myself. And what happens though is like, hey, Kurt, I got this thing. Maybe you, maybe you want to look at it. And I just kind of slide it across the table. Like, hey, you know. And, and we were at a pizza party at the time. Uh, this is, this is like during Gen Con. We're just about to run off to do an event later that night. And we're having pizza. And he kind of like, uh, hey, I've just been working on something. Well, you know, I don't know, maybe you want to take a look. And everyone's like, hey, let's play it. And I was like, I know what this is. <laughs> I'm just saying, you're in a stuff thing. We'll play it, have a good time. Yeah. This sounds like the backstabbing metagame. What are we talking about here, really? Oh, you have to understand, Kurt and I, Kurt and I, we, we, we live that backstabbing metagame. Like, um, I, I made a reference that we turn Channel A into kind of backstabby. Right, I, I, it's true. I introduce Kurt to Channel A, and I take out the cards, and we're just the two of us playing. For at first, we get like three other people who just walk by and say, uh, "Can we play?" And we're like, "Sure." And so, so I say, "Okay, so here's my, here's my, my thing. It's whatever, 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 whatever. Here's my pitch." And Kurt goes, takes a deep breath, he leans forward, and he goes, "All right, kid, that was great." except for the part that was garbage, which was all of it. Let me tell you how the going, right? And we become like 70s ad execs. And we're just like giving each other backhanded compliments and like shooting each other down. And like, it just, it just becomes this big thing. Because, because Jonathan hates to role play. I'm sure you know. Just, yeah, terrible, right? And like, but yeah, it's just that pick up and we just kind of go. So when we talk about a backstabbing metagame, we kind of live it. Okay. Cool. So um, Nate Murray from uh, XIDW, now with Indiegogo, asks, at what point does take that go too far? You know, is there a metric for you guys? I'm going to ask this to Kurt first. Um, You know, is like a card that undoes three rounds of everything you just built up and walks playback 30 minutes, is that too much? Yes. What is too much? (laughs) Yes. The the, the answer is yes. It can absolutely uh, quickly go too far. And... Typically, when things um, go too far is when you have uh, a mechanic that seems to disrupt the entire game and undo everything that has led up to the game. Um, it's uh, it's also uh, particularly upsetting when um, when players are not aware that that mechanic exists in the game. Um, like kind of what I said before, as long as, first of all, does everyone understand the social contract of a backstabbing game when they sit down to it? It's, it's important to let your players know about it. Um, but yeah, if, 
if things if you're eliminated in round two of a nine player a nine round game, that's too much. If you play one card that blows up the whole game, that's too much. And you find all of that out in in play testing or sometimes uh, just after printing, uh, as was the case with um, uh, a couple cards in Nevermore, where um, I had uh, built the set, we tested a lot, we tried to balance it best we could, but you know, you never know exactly until it really hits the marketplace where some of the things that you hadn't thought about start uh, becoming apparent. And there were three cards that when I went to do the reprint, I replaced in Nevermore because I felt that they did start hurting the game. In some cases, making the gameplay last too long, um, um, and unnecessarily so. So uh, yes, a great question, and yes, it can go too far, and that's what you have to balance and test for in these games. All right, Dylan, go ahead. So Jonathan, we just Kurt just talked about what was too much. How do you draw the line? What's enough backstabbing in a game? Okay, so um, enough backstabbing is, is for me the point where you can do it and the game still moves forward, right? Like, uh, and, and there's a lot of talk in, in role-playing circles too about failing forward in a game. You, don't, you know, that, that dynamic of, okay, so I, I go to unlock the door and I fail. Now what? Oh, the door's locked, you don't do anything. Eh, right? That's kind of boring. Same thing with, with when you're trying to have that character, like that interaction between players, right? If, if the game stops moving forward because of the backstabbing, that's too much. But if you're finding that there's the players aren't interacting at all or as much as you want, then that's not enough, mm-hmm. right? It's that balance between I'm having fun doing things to you, having things done to me, but, the, but progress still is happening. Even if there's a setback, right? A setback is I had a plan and now this plan is foiled, but I don't have any, like, it's not like I have no other options. If something happens and it destroys any other options I have, well, then that's too much. But again, you you want that kind of balance between the two. And I would build on that to say that um, I think it can also really propel gameplay when it's Mm. utilized correctly. And what I mean by that is um, if someone does a nasty screw you thing and all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, that changes my strategy now. Okay, I was going to go after him. No, you and I, we are now going, you are dead to me. That can now really start setting up great dynamics in a game. And of course, when it happens all the time, all the way around the table, now someone just did to me again, Okay, you're now it's you. <laughs> so that can really help propel the emotion and the experience of the game. And honest to God, that's that's why I do it. I love that. Cool. Excellent. Well, Kurt, I just actually want to follow up then on that. I mean, we talked about we've kind of thrown around a few examples of take that, but I'm curious, uh, beyond player elimination, what are different ways that you are creating backstabbing or what are different forms of take that just for people to kind of open their imagination? What kind of things um, do you, happens in Smirk and Dagger games that creates that interaction? Okay, that's a great question. Um, we've probably done it a different way in, in most of our games. So they, they, they share some similarities. Um, I think at the core of it, it's... Um, I build a funnel in my games where um, 
other games that are more Euro-based, again, it's more math, it's about economics, that sort of thing. What I try to do is I create a behavioral model in the game, and I build a funnel so that it leads people to act in the ways that I hope they will act. So I'll reward them for doing certain activities, and I'll inhibit them from doing other activities, and that's part of the game balance, you know, how do you reward players throughout the game? But if I get them all down the same funnel, because all my mechanics are leading to, I want you to play a card at this critical moment. I want you to, you know, at, at, towards the end of the game in Cutthroat Caverns, I want you to try to kill players. Cutthroat Caverns. Um, Great game. Great game. <laughs> Cutthroat Caverns um, is, I think it's, it stood the test of time because it does both things well. It's a cooperative game in that if you don't work together, you're probably all going to die and no one wins. But it's a game about kill stealing in a dungeon. So if you don't land the most killing blows, you're not going to win either. So if I have to trip you or edge him out of the way, I'm going to do it. But the more we mess with each other, creatures live longer, they do more damage, and we all get closer to death. Now, you can either win Cutthroat Caverns by landing the most killing blows and getting the most prestige and living. Um, But, and this is where the player elimination piece came in. Um, If you kill people at the beginning of the game, you probably will lose as a group. But if you knock someone off in the last round or two, that's another way to win because you can shove them off the off the edge of the uh, you know if they're dead they can't take the prestige wisdom they're out so now you're the prestige uh, prestige leader right so so it's like um often we'd call this like a semi-co-op yes Um, yeah and uh, there's a lot of designers out there that believe like strictly believe i think matt tolman would go to the grave saying that semi-co-ops will never work Jonathan, what are your thoughts on semi-co-ops and how do you make them work or how can you make them work? Well, you, 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 make, the, you make the costs matter, right? So like going back to Cutthroat, because Cutthroat, I think, is the best example for that, right? Is like Kurt said, at the beginning, the cost of eliminating someone is too high. You have too far to go and you're not certain if you're going to eliminate the right person, right? Like if we had played the game, right? And, and Dylan was, got eliminated early, maybe he wasn't going to be in first place by the time we got near the end, right? So there's no benefit to doing it. But the, 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 you know, the, the backstabbiness happens at the beginning for trying to find out who is going to be leading, right? I want to get the kill. I'm going to do the stabbing. I'm going to tr- edge you out. I'm going to trip this person, right? I'm going to do all these things. And then if I'm not in the lead, like, what is my other option? Well, my other option now is, well, not all of us have to make it, right? You know, particularly if I'm near the end, like, and, and that's reflected in some of the cards too, particularly because uh, there's talk about stuff that's coming down the pipe a little early. There's a new Cutthroat Caverns expansion coming out, uh, focusing on incarnations. And there's a card in there that kind of encapsulates that perfectly and it's pride. So pride is an encounter that will only show up later on, right? Because if it's too early, it, it's not worth its time. But it deals damage to the amount of prestige points you have. So the leaders are like, kill this now. But if you're in last place, you're like, oh, oh, I'll let you out. Why? I don't know. It doesn't hurt me, (laughs) right? And it becomes that thing where that now becomes a moment where you can decide, 
do I let these other characters, like, do I let the other players get eliminated in the hopes that I will win? Or, you know, do I try to get some more prestige and try to get back a, a, a traditional, like, a kind of the, on the points level? So, so I, I think, I think they can work, right? And I think again, Cutthroat Caverns is a great example of it. But I think the the decisions have to change over the course of the game, right? Where where you start more cooperative, but you end less cooperative. Hmm. I like that. So really talking about a curated experience. Uh, Dylan, what's your question? Well, I was going to go to Kurt. I wanted to kind of bring up a, a very not proud time in my life where I played Fantasy Forest with a bunch of my friends in a completely cutthroat, backstabby way, and it actually worked for a little while. Not proud. But to what degree, Kurt, like we were, I made a throwaway comment about metagaming earlier, but to what degree can you find just regular cutthroat experiences in the wild? And you were talking about a curated experience before I realized, but obviously, Cutthroat is not just about the curated experience. Where can you find these experiences in the wild? I'm not sure if I fully understand your question. So could you could you run at it one more time? So games that you haven't developed yourself, games that aren't necessarily supposed to be cutthroat, that you simply are able to, to dig into and really get completely cutthroat metagaming experiences out of. Oh, okay. So that, yes. Um, boy, you know... <laughs> With, with the people that I play with, Jonathan very much included, um, we can pretty much bring that experience, or at least the feel of it, uh, to really any game we play. Um, uh, he, had, he had a great story about, uh, you know, Channel A, and that was certainly, uh, you know, we... we t- oh, we and through the role-playing aspects of that, we, we made it exactly that. And that's where the fun of that game was for us, was, you know, the performance level. But, um, yeah, you, I, we can do it with Monopoly. We can do it with, you know, just pretty much any game. I think we've been able to find um, a way to elevate the meta and the, the fun and make it feel a little bit more uh, like our game. But, again, to your, your other questions, you're like, well, how how many different mechanics can you can you use? So, um, with Nevermore, uh, the backstabbing came as a result of um, uh, hate drafting, which is it's card drafting. But what you decide to take is equally as important as what you decide to pass along to poison their hand and break up their sets. And when you give them that last card and it does not go the way they planned because you planned on screwing them at the end, that's where that backstabbing comes in. And Nevermore, by the way, is another game where the player elimination was an innovation and had to be. Um, It was very much a game that was life point based and it was very easy for you to be out of the game. And in this case, you are often out of the game too soon. And that, of course, was that one step too far that we talked about before. Um, so it was, an, it was an issue. But it was also important to the game. So um, early in development, I was trying to find a way to have the same, the same emotional reaction, the same weight of do my, do my actions matter, and ended up 
turning it from player elimination into player transformation. And by that I mean, you know, if, if you lose all your health in Nevermore, you go from human into a raven form. Now, the raven form is an interesting thing. The, the player, you know, all the mechanics kind of change for you. You play a different role table. Now, you're dooming other players as you play and struggling to get the one or two hands that are going to allow you to return the game with all your victory points intact so that you can win the game. So you're never not playing. But as a Raven, you can't win no matter how much victory points you have. So there is a real reason and a meaning to, to being eliminated without actually having been eliminated. Though I think I'm going to add to the, that, I mean, the feeling that I love in Nevermore is when you've been passing Ravens and you know because of how many you've been passing, that other person next to you is collecting them, and then you hand them like one light, like one radiance, and they're like, ah, and you're like, yep, because <laughs> you do exactly what was going that way when you're paying attention. And with the Raven, not only are you, 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 you get to be an even bigger jerk as the Raven, right? Like it's not just like, oh, I'm eliminated, I get to do something, it's like, all right, who do I get to screw over now, <laughs> right? Like there's that kind of feel of being the Raven. Some people like it better. It's true. We yeah. have, there's some people who will like attack me. We're yeah. like, why? You're like hit me, just hit me. I, I want to be the Raven, just hit me now. Nice. Now with, with both Jacuse and Dead Last, the backstabbing is the group meta. And uh, so uh, if you don't know uh, Dead Last, Dead Last is, uh, what we dubbed a social collusion game. There's no hidden traitor in the game. Um, everyone is equally uh, on the same level. And it's about conspiring and then voting as a group who's going to die next. Now, interestingly enough, if if you let people know who the target is, they're going to defend themselves. So all the all the conspiring has to be very subtle. Um, so you're you know kind of subtly pointing or flashing your cards or things like that to get some, most of the people to know without letting your target know. It forces you together and to share information, but you don't know if they're going to lie to you because you're actually a target. Um, so it, the interesting dynamic about Dead Last is the shape of the table can even matter in the game. Um, a long rectangular table is a different situation than, our, than a round table because Long rectangles tend to have people start the game with this side against this side until someone gets too much money and they're like, oh no, we can't do that. And then all this side starts like grabbing people from over here and it just, all that meta really comes into play. And that's, that's terrific. Um, where Jacques, boop, there you go, Jonathan. Oh, it's all backwards. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jacques is, well, and I should let you talk about it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, for Jacques, it very much is that meta where you can look around and kind of see where things are going and, and kind of, you don't tell people what you're going to do, but you're kind of like, we know what we're playing, right? You're like, yeah. And then you, you, you can kind of work that meta. And it was, it was funny. I remember I was reading a review and someone's like, well, if someone gets some information on them, it's too easy to jump on them. I'm like, but in this game, that's a feature. It's not a bug right? The entertainment is, 
oh, you have three pieces, right? And we have all our cards and it's going to be a lot of fun because we all know what we're all playing, right? And everyone's like, yeah. And the person who's getting it's like, just give it to me. <laughs> like they know what's coming. And and it, that that kind of feeling is fun because in this case, the game plays really quickly, right? Like the, I think the game time says 45 minutes on it, but that's that that's like actually the far limit I've seen the game go. It Like if you it's have one of the... Yeah, right? It, it's very frequently done faster because if you run into one of those moments, everyone kind of works together and you have that kind of collective kind of he-he-he moment and, and then you go. So yeah, so that, that's, that's where that kind of social you know, conversation works with Jacques. Absolutely. Well, this leads actually right into my question for Jonathan. Uh, I'm curious. We had a little discussion going on in the in the YouTube chat, and there. Was, I'm sorry to whoever asked the question because I forget who you are, but someone someone was asking about new players to games and also king making in games. And I'm curious um, with take that games. Those two things are sometimes great and sometimes lead to frustration. How do you, as a designer, uh, keep that in mind so that those uh, overall don't spoil the experience. Well, um, so so king making is hard because I think king making is actually one of those things that can be entertaining, right? It's kind of like a, like that that if I can't win, allow yeah. me to have that moral victory. I'll decide who wins. Um, so I don't necessarily think it's a problem. Right. I think it. I think it's a problem if that's the only way you feel you can get anything out of it, right? Like in particular, if there's a, there's a runaway leader all the time, and so the only thing you can do is feel that you can, you know, find out who's gonna like either take them down or 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 or, or go other other places with that. So I don't necessarily think king making is a problem or the problem that people feel that it is. Right? I am going to disagree with you. Ooh. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, recent design coming in spring, Biotics. Mm. Um, as I was uh, play testing this game, and again, all of these problems you hope that you're going to find during play test, which is why you play test so much with so many different people, not people you know, people who are going to be just be like, your baby is ugly. Um, but it was a situation that I noticed that there was a mechanic that was leading to a decision when a, one player was so far out that mathematically they were able to look ahead and say, this is the last round, I cannot win. So either I'm completely uninterested in how this game continues, or I'm now given the choice, I get to decide who wins? Okay. But neither of those things are satisfying. So, um, so my challenge was how do I either minimize or eliminate that mechanic um, that led to that? And so in, in the case of biotics, I ended up building a catch-up mechanic, which um, is not automatically granted but if you are more than X points behind, you have the option, this like, you know, the, the Eureka principle kicks in and you essentially get to gamble on the particular pieces that you might have in your dish when you're done with the game. And if you're right, 
you get a 20-point boost, which is not going to win you the game. You still have to play a, a good hand for that, for that round. But all of a sudden, it takes you from I cannot win to I have a chance. And once you do that, the king-making goes away. And um, it, it turned out to be a perfect solve for biotics. So I would point out that that's not necessarily a disagreement. Because I said, for me, that if kingmaking feels to be the only option you have, then it's a problem, right? And that's what you talked about there, right? Where you get to the point where you're like, well, I'm done, right? And so now the only option I have is who do I, who do I decide who wins? So, so that becomes, that becomes, that is a problem, right? But I don't think people, because, because gamers uh, tend to take things that are principles and apply them religiously, right? So kingmaking is bad. Mm, no, kingmaking can be bad, but kingmaking can also be interesting, be an interesting choice, right? Depending on, on what's going on, right? But if it's your only option, then that, then I think that's terrible. Well, again, I think that if, if you are, if you have a choice between can I win this game or am I deciding who else will win the game if not me, it's always preferable that the player feels that they can win. So, mm. again, I fight against king-making. King yep. Okay. Good. So, um, Kurt, we're going to go back to you with this one and then D uh, Dylan will go to John with this question, but uh, I wanted to ask you the same question that Dylan's going to ask. Dylan, I'm stealing your question, but uh, <laughs> you can ask John. Ha ha! Stabbed you in the back. I mean, I'm stabbed already. Oh, my God. Um, so, do you have, you talked about designing your games with a funnel and a very specific kind of a game. We talk about curated experience, user experience, and game design. Uh, do you use any particular models when you're designing games, like psychology or game theory or anything like that? What contributes to making a good cutthroat game from a theoretical perspective? Wow. I would love to tell you that there is a wonderful science and formula that I apply. Um, I think at the core, um, I have a theme. I know what kind of experience I want to get um, from that game. And it becomes very much intuitive and very tied to the design of the game. So there's nothing, I think, that... Um, is necessarily a, a larger principle, other than the German concept of Schattenfreude, which, if you're unfamiliar with the term, uh, is laughing at someone else's expense. Um, and it seems to be a, um, a cornerstone of most of the games that, that I build, um, because that's kind of the benefit of backstabbing, is I'm going to do something, and it's going to make someone pissed off, and it's, I'm going to laugh. And so is the rest of the table. And then they get their chance later. Um, but um, there's, no, there's no particular way that I approach a game. Each game has its own moment that needs to exist. Uh, Cutthroat Caverns came about as a result of... Um, I used to be a, a huge D&D player. And I went from high school where I played... Get this, my D&D group in high school was all women and me. And um, it was very Tolkien-esque. It was very lawful good. If, if I found a magic weapon, by God, it's going to the person who can wield it best. Um, 
which was terrific. And we had a blast playing. And then when I got to college, I started playing with guys who were anything but that. And half of them wanted to be like chaotic or neutral evil or other kind of things. You know, they were assassins. And I started like looking in horror at the people around me. I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing that this DM can hand out that is going to be worse than potentially what comes from these guys. And that fearing of, feeling of horror and dread, that's what I wanted to make a game about. So if I could find a way to create that moment in a card game and then sustain it for every round of that card game, that's exactly what fed into it. So anything that I added as a mechanic that helped develop that feeling, great. Anything that was fighting against it or didn't contribute, pulled it out. So that uh, I'm gonna gonna lead into my asking of my original question with Jonathan here by breaking it up a little with a with a story. I'm I'm a trained forensic interviewer, and uh, I actually used to work in Hong Kong, and uh, went on a little tour of the ICA, ICA, ICAC building, which is the Independent Commission Against Corruption, which back in the good old days of Hong Kong answered only to the Hong Kong governor and basically ran around Hong Kong cleaning up all the, all the corruption everywhere. They have interview rooms there that are specifically built with tables that have exact 120 degree angles to the people who are being interrogated. So you have two interrogators at 120 degree angles to the individual across the table because they found that on a direct, like 180 degrees face to face, people were innocent to talk. So actually the shape of the environment involves you know, a lot more than just uh, than just the, the shape of the table. So the shape of the table can can actually have a, an influence on, on, on negotiations. But obviously, through forensic interviewing, you look at a lot of psychological models and kind of a way of trying to find what tokens, I guess you could say, you need to give to someone's psychology, determine where they are in their psychology, find a baseline, blah, blah, blah. Try to find the, a way to get them to tell you what you need to know. And so that's why I'm very interested in knowing what kind of either game theory models or psychological models you might employ, John, in your kind of designing and experience. Um, so um, unfortunately, my answer is going to probably be similar to Kurt. Uh, my background is actually in literature. So I did, yeah, so I'm, I have a master's in English literature uh, with a focus in restoration and renaissance. Um <laughs> But um, what happens for me is I'm always looking for I'm looking for an experience and I'm looking for a theme, right? Uh, I, I'm very thematic in how I do things, which may be a role playing thing too. Uh, so when I when I look at creating something, I'm like, what does the how does the theme benefit from it, and how do how do people experience it? So I, I don't come at it with a um, I don't I personally I don't come at it with a psychological model. I do some game theory cuz just like the basic stuff, right? Like make sure that there's no like no dominated strategy. Make sure there's no like, you know, that kind of stuff when you're when you're kind of doing it. But but for the most part, it's um I want to see what's happening at the table and if the reactions are what I want to see, then I know that's the direction I want to go in. But if if I'm not seeing a lot of banter, I'm not seeing a lot of interaction, I'm not seeing a lot of anything, then I'm like for me I know that's okay, even if it even if it works mechanically, even if the game is sound, right? That's there's something missing that I need to put in there to create that experience that I want. Right? Like Jacques, what happens is the best part is pointing at people and yelling jacuzzi, right? 
that's a great part. And, and the game could work without it, but it's so much better with it. And just people kind of just do it. So, so like, that's the kind of thing I want to see and, and notice when I'm, when I'm playtesting a game. I think that Kurt was going to follow up with something. Yeah. I am. So um, kind of adding to this, I uh, had a recent challenge. Uh, we have been working towards creating the Cutthroat Caverns app. Um, and it had some struggles in that we were like, well, Cutthroat is such a, a highly interactive game. How can you do that um, and expect people to be able to have time to react in a timely basis? So we decided, you know, it's probably not going to be an app that you're going to play live um, on your phone. It's probably going to be a game where we create an AI to simulate the experience of those interactions. So you were talking about the psychology of, uh, of backstabbing. And in working on the app, I started making a list of personality profiles that we have seen at the table. Um, because there are different things that set certain people off. Um, so at the table, there's usually someone who comes in with a predetermined meta grudge against another player. Um, when my friend uh, Justin and I sit down at a table, I know he's always gunning for me no matter what, and that's, it's just part of the game. So we have a, an AI that is going to select you as their grudge. Uh, another grudge, uh, or another kind of AI model is the tit for tat model. I am going to target my next action at the person who did me wrong last. Um, there's another model that, you know what? They are gonna save it all for whoever is in the lead. Um, the other kind of thing I think we identified was there's the, there's the peacemaker, there's the balancer. So there's always going to be someone who's like, you know, I'm going to distribute this evenly. I don't, I'm kind of a turtle player. I don't want to like piss anyone off. So, you know, that's their mentality. They're going to share it around the table. Um, and it was a really interesting exercise to not only identify these AI profiles, but then to look at every card in the set. And given those profiles, how, given the situations, are they going to play their cards? Um, and it does have to be different. If we're going to simulate playing against real people that feel different, it was really important for us to nail that kind of um, that modeling. Okay, great. So we're going to go to our last questions. You guys are really good at talking away time. It's great. Uh, just sitting here listening to you is super fun. Um, so, Kurt, I'm going to go to you, and then I believe somebody else will give John the last question. Uh, but, Kurt, my last question to you is this. If a designer has a game where they think that, you know, they've been told, oh, you know, don't do player elimination, um, what's your advice to them in terms of how do they figure out if they should keep player elimination? When does it leave? When does it stay? In general... I think that is wise advice in today's market. Um, player elimination is a stigma. It is uh, something that turns people off. So as I have continued to develop games, I have found ways to keep the spirit of player elimination 
without actually having it. Um, or like in Cutthroat, which was now 10 years ago, it was balancing all towards the end game. But now I much more prefer player transformation. Um, give them a meaningful um, twist to the game that even if you're not going to win in one way, you can win in another. Uh, student Bodies was a great example, too. Um, student Bodies was a highly competitive zombie game where you were tripping people and throwing them into zombies, and it was very cutthroat. But if you died before you got to an antidote, you would become a smart zombie. You would join the game now as a zombie player. And as a zombie player, it became cooperative. So you're, all the zombies are now trying to kill all the live players. And some people love that game better than when they're a human player. So it's meaningful to take someone out of the game, but it doesn't actually take them out of the game. And I think that is the advice I would give. Okay, well, and as traditionally, we're trying to get information for those new uh, designers who are trying to get a uh, get their first game out the door. So I'm going to go to John and ask, I've got this really clean, cold Euro. How can I make player engagement step up a notch? What are the, what are the ingredient, ingredients you try to spice in there to, to really get players at each other? Um, so if you're talking about something like, like a Euro game, uh, the the first thing I would do is look at your resources and make them, like, limit them, right? If you have to fight over something, right? In, so, like, in Cutthroat Caverns, you're fighting over the last kill, right? In, in you know what, like, my favorite not game that, that we have done that I love that is actually the most zen backstabby game, Takaido, right? There's only a limited number of spots, right? And so, you know, like, that's one of the things where it's like, okay, the resources, there has to be something that the players need to interact over, right? If there's always enough wood, if there's always enough sheep, right? If there's always enough whatever, then then there's no, there's no impetus to look at what's there and how you need to interact with other people to get the things that you need. Carol? Awesome. Awesome. Well, I just uh, I want to close up by saying a big thank you both to Kurt and to Jonathan. I really appreciate the games you're making. I have a lot of fun playing them personally. And also just the advice that uh, you were able to share with our viewers. We really appreciate that. We want to encourage people to support Smirk and Dagger, support the games that Jonathan's making. Uh, we're big fans of, of both of them. So check those out. Uh, also, we just want to say uh, thank you to our viewers for supporting the show and watching with us and participating with us on the on the YouTube. If you don't watch uh, live, we do uh, encourage people to uh, tell your friends about this. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on YouTube after the live show so that people can watch or listen whenever it's good for your schedule. Um, stay tuned next week, same time, 3 o'clock time Thursday we'll have another great show it'll be episode 99 so it'll be exciting stuff uh, until then uh, keep making great games we look forward to playing your game soon have a great day thanks so much